There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, we're here again. We are indeed. I'm glad to be here. So this is episode 29 already, Greg. Did you know that? That's pretty amazing, actually. It seems like just yesterday we started this whole project. Well, and it seems like just yesterday we were recording this together in the office, and now we're not due to, I guess, the lockdown, if that's the correct word in Alberta. That's right. Yeah. Last night, the premier declared another medical state of emergency in the province, and we're back working from our respective houses. So rather than sitting across the table, we're sitting across the Zoom meeting. (laughs) That's right. So last week, we looked at investment fraud, and we had a former enforcement agent with the Alberta Securities Commission talking about how to spot it, what to do if it happens to you, those types of things. But this week, we're going to dig into something completely different, not completely different, but just different more current to what is happening in global stock markets. So we finally have the end of the U.S. election, sort of. I guess that'll be finalized sometime January 20th. Is that right? Getting close, I hope. Getting close, that's right. Yeah, January 20th is inauguration day, that's right. But I think the Electoral College meet and cast their votes in the middle of December. So that should put a nail on it. So we'll have that behind us. We've got some really positive vaccine trials from a few pharmaceutical companies and you I think with those two things, the end of the election, the trials, that, that hope has sort of come back into the world. So today we wanted to look at factor investing and discuss things like all-time highs because let's face it, the U.S. stock market, I can't believe this actually, is back to an all-time high. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. So Greg, on that note, with the stock market being at an all-time high, we want, as I said, we want to revisit what works in investing as far as factor investing. So Maybe take us through something we've discussed in the past, but I guess is relevant today. Absolutely. So we wanted to just revisit some of the discussion from episode eight, actually, which deals with factor investing. And so as a refresher, academics and industry participants as well spent a lot of time trying to identify factors that are expected to drive higher expected returns from stocks. And you can understand why there'd be a lot of interest in that, obviously. But a lot of the work was originally done by Fama and French, where they identified two of the most dependable factors in predicting higher expected returns. And those factors were company size and relative price. Now, just to mention the other two, obviously the market or the stock market premium is also a factor, meaning that stocks are expected to produce higher returns than cash and profitability. That meaning that companies with higher expected profitability would be expected to perform better in the stock market. But we're going to focus today on two other factors, mainly price and also size to a certain extent. So let's start and talk about relative price. So when you look at companies, they can be rated by whether their share prices are trading at a high price relative to some fundamental measure. And that measure could be something like price to earnings or price to book value. 
by the way, those companies would be referred to as growth companies, companies that are trading at a high relative price, let's say relative to book value. Companies whose shares are trading at low relative prices relative to their book values are known as value companies. And so very often you'll hear a lot about value companies or growth companies, and that's just what that means. Value companies are trading at low relative prices, growth companies trading at high relative prices. And Greg, you know how I like to look at that is it's like going to the store. I know you and I have talked about this. You go to the store, your favorite pair of pants is 30% off. I mean, that would be kind of like a value stock versus you go to the store and that same pair of pants is 30% higher than it was yesterday, but you still want it for some reason. I guess that's a growth stock. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And so the research that was done by Fama and French and others has shown that in all stock markets around the world and over extremely long time periods, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. So the true test of whether a factor is real, whether it is something on which you can base an expectation of a higher return, is that it works in different time periods and it works in different stock markets, different geographies and things. And so the idea of value outperforming growth has been shown to be valid in most world stock markets. But not and in this course, current one, right? That's exactly right. And so when we talk about higher expected returns from value stocks, we're talking about expected returns and not actual returns. And in fact, over shorter time periods, such as three to five years, it seems that value stocks outperform growth stocks about two-thirds of the time. And of course, the other side of that means that growth stocks outperform value stocks about one-third of the time. And so in any short period of time, you really don't know exactly what's going to happen. You have an expectation that value stocks are more likely to outperform, but that's absolutely not guaranteed and it absolutely will not happen many times. But what you're saying there, though, is that the odds are in your favor, like two-thirds versus one-third. That's correct. The odds are in your favor. And so let's look at what's happened over the last few years. So even before we look at the last few years, let's look at the long term. So if you look at the U.S. stock market over the last 94 years, and that basically is from 1926 to June of this year, 2020, value stocks have grown at about 12.4% annually compared to growth stocks, which have grown at 9.8% annually. So that's, we're talking about outperformance there of 2.5% per year. And that amounts to quite a difference when you compound it over 94 years. So certainly the long-term holds for value stocks outperforming growth. However, when you look at the last three years, listen to this number, value stocks earned a negative 3.3%, while growth stocks grew by 17.9%. That's a huge difference. That's a massive difference. It means value underperformed growth by 21%. So that's quite a massive underperformance by value, despite the fact that we expect value to outperform. So is this unusual or unexpected? And I guess the answers to those questions are yes and no. So it is, given that value stocks outperform growth, as I said, about two-thirds of the time, we do expect growth stocks to outperform the other one-third of the time. And so it's not unexpected that we would see growth outperforming value. And as well, the big difference, that 21% gap is definitely unusual. But when we're looking at three-year periods of time, there have been other three-year periods when value underperformed by a lot. And some of these periods, so the three-year period ending in March of 1940, value underperformed growth by about 16.8%. 
And in 2011, value underperformed by about 15.1% over a three-year period. So having these big divergences between the performance of value and growth, it's not common, but it obviously can happen. It has now happened uh, several times. So the expected return is unexpected and expected at the same time. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. There's always an unexpected part of returns that, by definition, you can't plan for. Like a global pandemic? Things like that. Exactly. Well, I know value is getting a lot of press these days because of its current short-term underperformance to growth. And we're going to get into a little bit of that in a bit. But Barron's put out an article actually just yesterday and it was called Institutional Investors Share Their Strategy for Factor Investing. So that seems pretty timely to what we're talking about today because we're talking about factor investing and including value. And what they did, they looked at sort of what pension managers were doing and large money managers. So they do a survey and whether you believe in surveys or not, I guess is another argument. But in this survey, they surveyed 238 institutional and wholesale investors. So as I said, pension funds, insurance companies, private banks, etc. And they surveyed them on things like how they view or use value in their factor-related strategies, especially right now in the midst of the current uncertainties. That's another thing. You know, we talked about how currently expected returns are unexpected to be expected. I mean, I guess it's kind of like (laughs) these uncertain times that we're living in are certainly uncertain and we are certain that they will most likely not remain forever. That's a tongue twister. (laughs) So It is. But what they looked at was like, what do these money managers do and or how do they view it? And how the group viewed it was like what you talked about. There is a diverging performance between value and growth and that's completely expected. That when we went through this pandemic at the beginning, that it was high quality stocks with stable profits and strong balance sheets that actually held up relatively well. And I guess that goes back to your point about profitability. Yep. Like those companies have higher profitability. So they were doing better than companies that lower profitability. And I guess the question I'm getting from investors is, well, why? When you look at the market, well, when the economy shut down in March, I mean, stock prices are based off of future cash flow expectations. So you can see why the stock market fell because companies weren't making anything or selling anything. So they lost some momentum. So what they looked at as a group was the other side of the coin, which was the smaller sized, cheaply traded stocks that were lagging and missing out on the recovery from March. And so that goes back to this point that investors are making that, look, value's dead. You've heard that from a few people, right? Value's dead. We have. Which that's a pretty harsh statement. Well, and that always happens when you've got a strong recent trend in an opposite direction. So when you look at such dramatic divergence in growth versus value stocks in the last three years, people might come to the conclusion that that's a permanent change. And that's a behavioral bias or a cognitive bias. It's called recency. And that's the believing that what's happened in the recent past is going to continue on into the future. And so when we talk about the stock market and stock market returns, I have people saying, well, the market's down today because people are taking profits or it's up today because people are seeing opportunity. But when they talk about these people, I find people are referring to people like themselves. But the reality is that retail investors don't move the market very much. Exactly. So it really is these pension funds and these large wealth management 
firms that actually have more market participation. So then in this article, they talked about, well, what are these large market participants doing in regards to value? And guess what? Two thirds of them are adding more value into their portfolios. So at a time when others, other retail investors are telling us that value is dead, the largest companies in the marketplace are adding about 30% more exposure to value stocks this year. So that's very counterintuitive to what you're hearing in headlines. Well, it is. And I spoke just a few moments ago about how we've gone through periods when growth stocks have outperformed value stocks dramatically. But here, what about three-year periods when value stocks outperform growth stocks by a wide margin? Because obviously, that's what a lot of these institutional investors are banking on, that eventually the situation will reverse itself and that there will be a rotation out of the growth stocks into value stocks. Well, in the three years ending in June 1945, value stocks outperform growth stocks by 29.6%, almost 30%. Now, that's a dramatic divergence, and that's expected. Maybe it's unusual, but it's still expected that we will get that kind of divergence. Likewise, value outperformed by about 22.4% in the three years leading up to December 77, and by 17.5% three years ending in June 2003. Interestingly, if you look at that last one, the three years ending in June 2003 began in June of 2000. And June of 2000 marked the end of the big tech bubble and really the beginning of the rotation back into lower priced or cheap value stocks. And there you go, over a three-year period, value outperformed by 17.6%. So just goes to show that, again, you can make certain predictions and expectations over the long term, but in the short term, pretty much anything can happen. So this is interesting. Here we have a top heavy stock market with the largest 10 stocks accounting for 20% of the market capitalization and a marquee technology company perched at number one. Which company? Without recommending it, which is the largest company? Well, I just wanted to say that statement sounds like a description of our current stock market, doesn't it? With Apple and the other FANG stocks? Well, that actually is a reference to 1967, when IBM represented a larger portion of the market than Apple did at the end of last year. So the point being, there's been many periods when you look at the top five to 10 stocks we're talking about the US markets here, but the same can apply in Canada and elsewhere. There's been many periods where those top five to 10 stocks make up a huge portion of the overall market. And in fact, I was just remembering fondly to myself back in 1999 and into 2000 when Nortel, the one company Nortel, actually made up 20% of the Canadian market index. And most of us remember what happened then. And But I guess the point is that there do the impressive growth. So Apple and Amazon and the other big fang stocks that are now make up 20% of the US market, they obviously had fairly impressive growth to get them there in the first place. And I'd argue that their growth has been much faster than the market as a whole. Let me expand on that just for a minute, because I did have another investor say, I want to own something like Google. That's what I want to buy. Shares in Google. Again, not recommending it, just a story of what happened. And I said to her, don't you want to actually own the next Google? Because Google's already gone up tremendously, just like those other companies that you described, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Facebook, etc. For sure. So in order to get the next Google, wouldn't you be looking at a small cap value stock that would grow into a large cap growth stock? That's exactly how you find those. And that's by having a broad exposure to some of those smaller companies, which 
some of which are going to be next year's big companies. So our friends over at Dimensional Funds looked at annual returns for these stocks that get into the top 10 list of the US market. And what they did is they looked at annual returns relative or in excess of the market returns after a stock first becomes a top 10 stock. So here's what they found. If you look at the subsequent three-year period after becoming a top 10 stock, the average excess return over the broad stock market for those stocks was about 0.7%. So if you take some of these stocks, which have just broken into the top 10 and now make up a huge portion of the market, they do outperform the rest of the market only by a small 0.7%, or at least that's what they've done historically. If you look at the subsequent five years after a stock gets into the top 10, the return relative to the market as a whole was actually negative 1.1%. And then if you take it out to 10 years, the return was actually negative 1.5% compared to the overall market. So to your point, getting into some of these stocks now, unfortunately, it's easy to look back. But looking forward, we've sort of missed the boat in terms of catching that massive growth that got them into the top 10 in the first place. And it's why that focus on individual stocks can actually get you into trouble. If you're trying to jump into these names now, expecting the growth to continue at exactly the same pace in the future. Yeah, that just doesn't work that well. I mean, you've got to jump in your DeLorean, hit it up to 88 miles an hour, go back in time and purchase them then. Exactly. That's right. You (laughs) betcha. (laughs) Because right now we are back to an all-time high, or not back to an all-time high, we are at an all-time high. I guess it's just what it is, but we do have a lot of people that talk to us about, should I invest in the stock market right now or should I wait? We did an episode a while back, and I don't remember which one it was, but we looked at the performance of somebody getting in. Didn't we call it lucky versus unlucky? Mr. Lucky versus Mr. Unlucky? Yes. And Mr. Lucky bought into the market on the dips and Mr. Unlucky bought into the market at the previous highs all along. And it wasn't that much of a difference in spread and return. That's right. I mean, there's definitely a difference as you'd expect, but Mr. Unlucky had an extremely good return over a long period of time, despite his horrible market timing. Because he stayed invested. Exactly. didn't flee the market. So he expected that the expected return, although unexpected, would be expected to be higher if he stayed invested. Here we go. (laughs) Try to figure that one out. (laughs) Right now when we're talking about expected returns and the unexpected that we're surrounded with, be it the U.S. election, the potential negative effect that might have, depending on what happens even in the next few days, the idea of what will happen with COVID testing and vaccines, as we talked about, So the question from investors is, will the market go up or down? And you have a famous way of answering this question. I won't do it justice, but I'll try. I think you say something like, the market will go up until it goes down or down till it's up, or it might stay the same. Don't you say that? (laughs) Yeah. And it's. I think the bottom line is though, in a broader sense, we actually expect the market to go up over time. And it always has. And economies grow and they don't grow every year. Like during a pandemic, the economies don't grow, but over time, things normalize and populations grow, economies grow, they get wealthier and companies that participate in those economies grow and grow their earnings. And as expected, the stock markets do tend to go up over time. That's what we expect. That's the equity premium that was identified years ago. And and as long as you believe in capitalism and sort of how things are working in the world right now, we expect markets to go up and for stocks to outperform cash investments. Exactly. 
And I guess it gets to that point about, well, for investors wondering, oh my gosh, is now a good time to put money into the markets? As we've identified with Mr. Lucky and Mr. Unlucky, it's always a good time to put money into the markets. And as long as you have an asset allocation strategy that allocates some money to stocks and some money to bonds or cash or other investments, you always have a balanced portfolio that will allow you to take advantage of whether they're buying opportunities in stocks or bonds. But that's how you take care of it. You don't have to make bold predictions about the future in order to know whether now's a good time to invest or not. It's one interesting thing because it's hard not to get caught up in headlines. And one of the headlines, of course, lately has been around Tesla. Because Tesla, which is again is not a recommendation, we're just talking about it as a case study. Tesla got a lot of activity this past week because it's being included in the S&P 500 index. And of course, there's a lot of interest in, well, any index funds, of course, have to buy Tesla in order to have it represented in their portfolios. But there's been a lot of talk about Tesla over the last little while. So the question is, do valuations matter? So here's Tesla. The last I looked today, it was hitting an all-time high of $569. And that's after they completed a five-for-one stock split back at the end of August. And so the pre-split price is $2,700, $2,800, whatever that is. So the absolute price doesn't really mean a lot. Something, if a stock trades at $1,000 or $200, that can just be a function of a stock split. But when you scale it to something, in this case, let's look at price to earnings. Where is Tesla trading at? Well, at the current price, Tesla is trading at 1,142 times this year's earnings. It's a lot to pay. Let's for. put that in English for people. So, because I know we talk about price to earnings, it is the stock price divided by the corporate earnings. Exactly. So, that means for every dollar of earnings that Tesla is expected to make this year, you're paying $1,142 to earn that $1 of earnings. And we looked at how this compares to its peers. So, maybe not its peers, but Apple was trading at about, I don't know, something like 35 times earnings. Correct. Yep. Microsoft about 34 and a half times earnings. CIBC bank stock is trading at around just under 13 times earnings. Arguably a value stock. And by the way, and you can tell how Tesla's earnings are expected to grow because the stock's trading at 1,140 times this year's earnings, but about 250 times next year's estimated earnings. So clearly, Tesla's earnings are expected to grow over the next year. The question is, can Tesla's growth continue at a pace fast enough to bring their price earnings multiple more in line with those more established growth companies you mentioned, like Microsoft and Apple at 34, 35 times range? So listen, we're not saying it will or it won't. Some people obviously believe yes, because they continue to buy the stock at these prices. Others believe no, because they're the ones selling their shares to the buyers. So in the end, time will tell. But of course, anybody choosing to buy an individual stock, regardless of the name, you have to be aware of what are the fundamentals. And paying $1,142 for $1 worth of earnings seems expensive to me. It does. But I want to relate it to my son. You know him. He's 17 years old. He doesn't buy stocks, but he's interested in things like clothing brands. And I don't get it, Greg. There's a clothing brand called Supreme. Have you ever heard of it? Only from talking to you. So you can buy what I call a bunny hug, because we're from Saskatchewan, but a hooded sweatshirt that literally just says Supreme on the front of it. That's it. 
It could be a red bunny hug that says in white supreme on the front of it. That hooded sweatshirt sells for about anywhere from three to $500 or more. Whereas if you just buy a regular hooded sweatshirt and you went to a store and had them stitch Supreme on the front of it, you could probably get it for about 30 bucks. <laughs> so, well, that's what some people are willing to pay for ranges dramatically from individual to individual. The point I wanted to make was, because we get this often, are there more sellers in the market? Are there more buyers in the market? And we've talked about this before. In order for there to be a transaction, whether it's for a Supreme bunny hug or for Tesla stock, there has to be a seller for every buyer and a buyer for every seller. Otherwise, it doesn't sell. Exactly. And they come together and they agree that the price that they agree on, each party believes it's fair. And so that's just the market. So let's spend a few minutes, Greg, talking about some other questions we're getting these days. One I got yesterday was from somebody who was referred to us. I was looking through her portfolio and she made a comment about, shouldn't we focus on a dividend stock strategy? And I get this one a lot. You've probably gotten this one a lot over the years too. For sure. Especially because we have people like Kevin O'Leary who talk about having a dividend strategy, getting paid to wait, all these kinds of little things. But what I told her was like, look, dividends are kind of like calcium. And she said, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I know you and I have talked about this, but dairy producers, not knocking them, just making this as a statement, they put out these ads on TV that say you've got to drink I don't know, what is it, two or three glasses of milk a day to get the right amount of calcium in your diet. But we also know that if you just have a well-balanced diet that's diversified with a bunch of different foods, that you actually get calcium from that diet and you don't have to focus on drinking two to three glasses of milk. So dividends, we've talked about how it's kind of like a byproduct of being invested rather than a focal point of being invested. So that's one that I came across yesterday. What's another one that you've come across recently? Well, certainly, and we talked about this when we talked about is the 60-40 portfolio dead? And that is, well, do I need to continue to hold bonds? And I think the answer to that is, well, yeah, I think so. The global bond market is $128 trillion in size. I believe in the US, there's something like a couple hundred billion dollars of bonds traded every day. Everybody owns those bonds. Those bonds are not lost in space. People hold bonds and they hold them because of what bonds can offer. And bonds can offer a lot. They can offer a steady stream of income. And even with interest rates low, there's still types of bonds where you can earn a decent income by holding on to them. They give you diversification from stocks and allow parts of your portfolio to actually do well when other parts are doing poorly. And so there's a variety of reasons to hold bonds. And the reasons to hold bonds haven't changed when interest rates are low, as they are right now, bond prices are high. But you don't hear people saying, well, we shouldn't hold stocks because stock prices are high. And the same reason why you still want to own bonds, because over time, you're going to get that stream of income. If interest rates do go up, which is part of the underlying fear of holding bonds is that, well, interest rates are going to go up and that could be negative for bonds. But as interest rates go up, all the money that's being reinvested in your bonds or bond funds can be reinvested at higher interest rates. And so lots of good reasons to continue to hold bonds. And again, maintaining that balance in your portfolio, regardless of whether it's 60-40 or 70-30, whatever it might be, that's a strategy that if you stick to it, will benefit you in the long run. So should I hold bonds? What about dividends? Should I be investing more in the stock market is another one that you talked about earlier in this. I mean, Mr. Lucky versus Mr. Unlucky, just 
be invested, focus on your asset allocation, be diversified, have those factors of return that we just went through. And you'll probably give yourself a better chance of being successful. Exactly. And that's all you can do. As we've talked many times before, there's a few things you can control, like your diversification, your asset mix, your costs. And the rest is just going to be up to whatever the stock market or the bond markets choose to do. And impossible to predict. All you can do is make your best choice and stick with it. I think you kind of summed it up. I was just going to say, what did we learn today? But I guess that's what we learned today. We also learned something about focusing on higher expected returns, knowing that the short-term expectations are unexpected. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with? I think that's it. Just again, focusing on what you can. And I think one of the key things is that we're going through kind of an unprecedented time and people will say, well, it's different this time. I think the point is it's always different. And yet certain things over the long term kind of remain the same. So there's always uncertainty and that's the way it is. There's that old saying, it's from somebody much more famous than you and I, and I don't remember who said it now, but the only thing constant is change. Exactly. So listen, for fun, what are you doing these days? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you doing? Well, we're actually, we're into a really great limited series right now called The Undoing. And it's with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant and a very good kind of a murder mystery and excellent show. But unfortunately, it's week to week, so you can't binge it. You have to watch one episode at a time, just like the olden days. Are there commercials too? No commercials. Okay, so it's not quite as bad as the old days. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What about yourself? Well, what am I doing? I just finished a book. I just finished The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. I'm not sure why I'd never read that book until now. I got to tell you, it was just okay. And I know the other people will tell me it's great and it's a historical American classic novel, but I don't know. It was okay. The interesting part about that book that I found is that I asked my son about it and he's also reading the same book in his grade 12 English class. So we had some commonality there. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) But for shows, I just... I'm watching The Boys, which I wouldn't recommend for younger viewers, but it is an interesting show. I don't know if you said you've seen one episode of it or something. I've watched one or two, that's right, but have not finished the series. I watched a movie the other night called An American Pickle. Have you heard of that one? I've heard of that. I have. Good show. It's not very good, but it is lighthearted. It's a nice break from all the seriousness. I mean, it's about this guy in the, I don't know, early 1900s who falls into a basically a pickle jar hole and he's pickled for the next hundred years and wakes up a hundred years later and trying to figure out where he is and what life's all about. And I've been watching, or I just finished a series, a little mini series called hate thy neighbor, which was a fascinating series about just looking at racism in the world. So not as lighthearted as an American pickle. Sounds like you've got quite a disparity there between the two types of shows you're watching. (laughs) We got to diversify your interests, right? (laughs) Exactly. And I got to tell you, with this shutdown, I am not sure what we're going to do with our kids or anybody is going to do with their kids. How do you keep a 17-year-old at home with no friends over for a three-week period? Ropes and chains. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's probably all you can do to keep them in the house. (laughs) That's right. And sadly, that's why they've shut down grade 7 to 12 starting next Monday, is just that those are the grades, the teenagers are the ones that want to get out and socialize and be with their friends. And unfortunately, that's part of the problem we're going through right now. So it's going to be a tough next five or six weeks till they get back to school in in January. But hope has come back. 
vaccine trials look promising and I'm hopeful for an end of the school season and getting back to more normal stuff. So listen on that, I guess we better wrap it up, but anything you want to leave with? Let's just hope everyone stays safe and stays healthy and we'll get through this together and look forward to next week. That's right. All right. Till next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.